Okay, we're recording. Here we go. One characteristic emerged as a significant predictor of success. It was grit. I'm super excited to um, uh, bring on the guests that we have today. And we're going three people this time instead of just two. We always go one-on-one. But today we're going to have Kyle, myself, and Jeff Gardner of Graphy. Hey, Jeff. How's it going, guys? Pretty good. Pretty good. Welcome, Jeff. I'm really impressed that you didn't uh, say Jeff Gardner from Intercom as well, because that's it's been so long so that I've been there and that all of our history together has been through Intercom. So it's yep. like, oh, good work. No, I almost did, actually. <laughs> that's pause. why there was a slight pause there. It's because I was just about to say Intercom, and I actually have your LinkedIn up. Just, you know, I always do that with anybody that comes on. And I, right at the last second, I saw Graphy, and I was like, oh, good. And I dropped that in there. So Well, well done. Sorry to call you out on it then. <laughs> Are you used to it at this point, Jeff? Uh, almost. Yeah, it's been like four months, so I'm almost used to it. I still say, I still use the royal we anytime I'm talking about Intercom, though, which is uh, mm. super confusing for most people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you're still uh, invested over there. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Thankfully, uh, stock options are a thing, and uh, I spent enough time there to have a few of them. So, yeah, you're probably hoping for, I keep hearing word that they're going to, they're trying to IPO. Does that is that like realistic or is that just kind of stuff for like I'm PR? sure I'm technically not supposed to talk about any of that stuff, <laughs> but like I mean, yes, like the business is uh in the phase that uh it should be thinking about IPOing in the next couple of years. So I think uh they're they're working on making a lot of the big moves and, and getting things all in order because you know, when you go and file your S one, you have to like you know, put out the last two years of all of your financials and everything else. And so uh, usually companies have to go, okay, starting about two years out, we're going to, you know, get everything in order and then we'll file all the paperwork and be ready to go. And we won't look like a crazy startup. Gotcha. I cannot imagine that process. That sounds quite intense. Yeah, it's got to be, it's got to be insane. Uh, and, you know, like, I don't know if you guys have seen, but there's a lot of companies who are skipping the whole like IPO process and doing the direct listings. And there's a few other things as well. And I think a lot of it's just to get around the headache of paperwork and like the agency problems that are inherent with the investment banks and stuff. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of a fan. I mean, I'm a fan of just alternate routes and like putting pressure on the defaults to see like what else comes of that. I think that's a good thing. Yeah. So on that topic, uh, one thing I kind of wanted to hit on was your background. So Jeff, you you were at Intercom for eight years, right? Like a yeah, long. Yeah, it was nearly time. it was nearly eight years in the end. Yeah, it was a couple months shy, but yeah, close to. What employee number were you? Uh, four after the four founders. Four. Wow, yeah. that's wow. crazy. So I mean, that's base. That's like a huge thing I wanted to hit on was just like what. <laughs> What was that? Um, you know, we've all been a part, like Kyle and I have been a part of startups and stuff, but we've never been a part of something like that. So I don't know how you can boil that down into a couple of sentences here, but uh, maybe talk a little bit about like being the fourth employee, what it was like then, and then like how things sort of progress to where they are today. I know there's a lot in that eight year time frame, yeah. but, uh, but that's a super interesting story. Yeah, it was. Um, I mean, if, if I said I had any inkling that it would be as big as it has become, uh, you know, I'd be lying. But it was, um, you know, the decision to join at the time I joined was based solely around uh, employee number two was a really good friend of mine, Derek Curran, who's uh, still at Intercom and is our VP of engineering. And, um, you know, kind of off the back of knowing Dara really well and knowing, you know, he was an incredible engineer and having met uh, Des and Owen at a conference or two and, you know, before that, I just knew that like, okay, here's a group of extremely smart people um, who, you know, have a big idea. Like I want to be involved in that in whatever way I can be. And so um, it was definitely a little bit uh, serendipitous, but at the same time, you know, kind of went, okay, this, there, there's no way this could go badly in, in a sense. Right. Were there, um, did you guys yeah. have customers at that point or was this like strictly like idea level? So I think that it was, uh, we, we definitely had customers, but we didn't have very many. We were still in like closed beta um, and we were adding folks. It wasn't like a manual adding, you know, like, you know, superhuman and like Graphy is right now. It was sort of a closed beta in the sense that we were letting in big chunks of people to just uh, self-serve on board at the time. Uh, and I think it was just a few months after I joined that we, uh, 
basically started charging money. Um, and our first pricing at intercom was like, uh, $50 a month flat, you know, there was like no, uh, limits or usage, you know, types of things like that. And so, uh, as you can tell, you know, if you guys know intercoms pricing, it's come a little ways since then. It's a little more complicated than it used to be. We won't uh, get into that. I know there's a lot of, uh, Twitter seems to, you know, the, the people that want to, uh, I don't know, there's a lot of cancel people trying to cancel intercom because that yeah, literally well, I mean, in fairness, like the intercom pricing is pretty complicated. So I don't think, uh, you know, they can't dodge that bullet. I think that has to be fixed at some point, but, um, mm. it is a complicated broad product. And so it's very hard to actually price accurately on that. You know, right. you've got so many different types of teams using it and so many different ways and so many different sizes of companies and that sort of thing. It becomes, uh, uh kind of a quagmire to try to deal with like, how do you accurately capture that value without leaving tons of money on the table as a business? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's something we always, when we're talking, obviously all of our user feed customers are uh, intercom customers as well. So, you know, every once in a while, one of them will be like leaving intercom. And so they're obviously leaving us and we'll have conversations back and forth. And it's a, a lot of times has to do with pricing. Um, and it just, I mean, I understand it. I know what you, what, what intercom is is trying to do or what it maybe have to do um in order to to grow revenue and capture that value but yeah it's definitely um i don't know it's it's too complex for me yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and you know like i think the funny thing is is like you kind of hit the nail on the head there businesses um have to evolve over time and like you know as you're building more features you should be charging more money because you know mm -hmm. in theory those features are more and more valuable to your customers um, and, and like the business's strategy of like, which customers do we actually care about and are the ones we're going after now changes over time. And like, that's okay. just a natural thing. And so, uh, you know, to assume that a business is going to stay with the exact same price and targeting the exact same customers for, you know, decades is, is kind of nuts. Like that's just not going to happen. Um, yeah. and so yeah, I find that usually those pricing conversations come up the most, you know, the people that are the most, um, intense about it or most like vehement against it are the ones that don't understand that kind of basic fact and expect mm -hmm. that like, Hey, the world just doesn't change for me. Like it should just be the way it has always been. And, and, you know, they're totally rigid in their thinking around that. I think it would be an easier conversation if it wasn't also very complicated. Like part of it is that it's getting expensive, but it's also hard to just figure out. Totally. Yeah. And that, that to me is actually the, the problem, right? Like the expensive part is like the least of the problems it's actually, and when you look at it, you know, in, in front of tools like Zendesk or Marketo or, you know, other tools at that same level, you know, targeting th those size customers, it's actually super cheap. Um, you know, like Marketo charges, I don't know, eight or 10 times more than intercom would per year, yep. uh, at least. And so it's sort of, it's a mismatch of like, comparison of like, Hey, you think you're a tool for a small business, but actually no, you're a tool for the enterprise. And, and like the pricing should be reflecting, you know, reflecting that rather than what, you know, somebody's prepared to pay, you know, 50 or hundred bucks a month for. Totally. Yeah. And I guess, well, we kind of, we went from the $50 flat to the current state of the world. So how, yeah. like take us through, I mean, obviously the product changed a lot during that time, but, and the team. So what was what like yeah, from, yeah. from day one, how did, how did we'll it skip get? on the rest of the pricing discussion, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. So the, you know, in early days in intercom, it was, um, you know, very much like graphy is today. Uh, you know, graphy is a 10 person team. We are, you know, effectively pre product market fit. Um, we are, you know, rapidly building this vision of this thing that we think could be extremely valuable, but, um, you know, we just haven't built enough product yet. And I remember in the early days of intercom, like I was hired to do, you know, technical support and a little bit of engineering. And the, like, when you look back at some of the screenshots and stuff, you're like, how did I ever use this uh, to support anybody? Like it didn't have so many of the, like the really basic stuff, um, that everybody just assumes, uh, you know, tools like that would have had to have. And, and so it's kind of interesting to think like it has actually come so, so far, uh, in so many different directions. Um, and, and like, that's just, you know, that that's part of that journey, right? Like you, you don't know what you don't know at the beginning. And as you start to figure out all of these little, you know, you, you start to kind of pull the thread and figure out some of the details you need to make the next step and then to make the next step. And so at every step, it doesn't feel like it's a major jump forward or anything like that. It's just, you're still just pulling that same thread and, and slowly figuring things out and, and sort of adjusting to, to the situations you find yourself in. Um, so like looking back, you kind of go, oh yeah, there's like distinct periods. And like, that was a really big step up. And none of those ever felt like that at the time, you know, you're kind of like running around trying to get as much as you can done, which I think 
is pretty much true for everybody in every job. Um, it's just that, you know, the, I guess the situation you're finding yourself in is, is changing quite rapidly in terms of how fast you're able to grow, um, how fast you are able to grow customers as well as like revenue and, and the team obviously. Uh, and so it's, it's definitely an interesting place. Like I've always said, you know, if you want to learn, you know, 10 or 15 years worth of business in a handful of years, go join a really early stage startup that, you know, does actually pull off the rocket ship move. Um, because you could join a really early stage startup and it could stay really small or it could grow, you know, quite slowly. Uh, I think intercom going from, you know, eight of us when I joined to 650 or so, uh, was was one of those like you know models of growth that is just hard for the human brain to comprehend yeah that's mm-hmm. that's crazy and what what like i guess on that note being on the support side obviously the customer base starts to grow the product is evolving would you say like how how does that part compare to also the team growing and i'm sure there were stretches where the team growing is growing really fast so what was like those two sides of that journey like yeah, it was interesting. Like I was saying before, you know, and I was actually talking about this with somebody uh, there recently at Graphy. Like when when we were starting out with Intercom, like I was saying, the product was really immature. Like it couldn't do so many things, and like none of the amazing automation features uh, that Intercom have come out with in the last few years were there. And so we had this super, you know, baseline customer support tool that couldn't do a lot of things that a lot, you know, that Zendesk at the time could already do. And so we we didn't have these like features to help us move faster. And so in a lot of ways, the support team grew in lockstep with our customers for years um, because the only way we could keep up with them was to add more people to the team. Um, and so that I find like, you know, looking back, I'm like, wow, that, that actually is interesting. And, you know, it's a dynamic I would never want to, you know, do again because uh, being in full, you know, in lockstep with hiring alongside your customer growth is a hard place to be. Yeah. You know, there was a couple of years there where it was like, we were doubling the team, uh, you know, every eight or nine months on the support side, um, you know, totally separate from what the rest of the company was doing. It was just like, okay, our customers are growing really fast. We can't do anything but add more people. Um, and interviewing and hiring is uh, hard and time consuming. And, you know, it's always risky adding new people to the team and stuff. So uh, I feel like at least on that side, that was a, a, a really great learning experience and something I feel very comfortable and confident doing now. It's like hiring people. I'm just like, I can do it in my sleep. I know the flags I'm looking for. I know, you know, with relative certainty, like which risks are, are good risks to take versus which risks are pretty dangerous. Uh, but at the same time, I would never want to grow a support team the way we did then, uh, you know, at what, on, what, so what are you looking for in a, you know, somebody on the customer success side, like what kind of things would you be looking for? Or what would the red flags be? Yeah, it's an interesting question because it changes very much with the stage of the business. Um, mm-hmm. And actually, probably all roles in a company change pretty drastically in this way. Um, in the very early days, the, the thing you are looking for above all else is, um, you know, these generalist hustlers that are able to uh, get a lot of different work done and get it done to a pretty high degree, but like not to the degree that you would see, you know, somebody that's a hardcore practitioner in that area that has the time and like headspace to work only on that one topic. Um, you know, so in the early days, uh, customer success, customer support, whatever you want to call it, actually is kind of a combination of a few different roles. It's um, it's obviously customer success and support. You're getting people onto your product. You're helping them understand how to use it and get the most out of it. You're helping them when they run into problems. But you also have to be the product marketer uh, in being able to understand a little bit about like, you know, what is the customer actually looking for? What value do they see in our product? How should we be talking to other customers about, you know, that value or, or about the product? Um, and then you're also kind of in the product team because you're the person talking to customers. And so the product, you know, engineers and designers and stuff are going to be leveraging your knowledge and your, you know, learnings really heavily and making sure that they're making the next right steps. Well, and in this um, case too, you're also the target market, or at least for a lot of what Intercom did in the beginning, like your support team is also the target market. So that makes it even more of like a product expertise situation. Yeah, for sure. And that was um, that was one thing that I think naturally we were just very good at uh, kind of keeping an eye on in the early days at Intercom. Um, like I was uh, partly by virtue of the fact that I was doing some of, you know, bug fixing and I was just really close with all the engineers and, and the product team in the early days. Um, we just had like a pretty close pulse on 
you know, uh, how we, uh, we're both alike and very different from some of our customers in that space. Um, you know, for a long time intercom, like we were the, I don't know, second or third largest, uh, support team using the product. And so we actually were kind of outside of our target market by a lot, in a lot of ways. Uh, mm -hmm. so looking at like the things that we needed wasn't actually always that helpful. Well, that's, um, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. And did you like on that note, I, I feel like there's a tension there where, I, and we find this on a, obviously on a smaller scale, but like when you use your own products, it can help you form opinions and move a little faster and, and also like kind of help other people be successful in ways they might not have thought about. How do you, how did that tension play out in terms of, Hey, we're maybe not, we don't look like a lot of our customers, but the thing, some of the things we're doing would actually serve them really well, but they might not be thinking about it. Is that something that came up or was it more, Hey, we're not quite the same. Let's just, you know, some things will come up for us, but we probably shouldn't bake those opinions in. No, we, we definitely, um, so I guess there's kind of two layers to this. One is like how we as a support team worked with customers and, and like help them understand what they could and couldn't do, or like how far you could push intercom. And I think it's actually really interesting. I think there's a ton of, uh, kind of preconception out there still that like intercom is not a tool for big teams, um, or like can't handle large support loads. Uh, which I think is total garbage because uh, I've seen it work really well uh, mm -hmm. and seen it work really well even before all the automation stuff has come out. So uh, I know for a fact that it's a fantastic tool for huge teams. Um, but I think, you know, there's the, there's kind of filtering our own experiences with Intercom as a support team and helping customers understand where they can push it and where they probably shouldn't. Uh, and then there's turning around to the product team and saying, look, um, you know, there's, there's all these different things that we would love to see um, probably only, you know, two or three of these are actually actually applicable to who we want our customers to be right now. Um, and, and kind of having both the, uh, the ability to sort of abstract yourself out of the picture there and know that like, Hey, we shouldn't be recommending just the features that we want because actually that doesn't, it's not helpful for the business. Um, that can be hard, but it's, I don't know. I feel like we were always a very product focused support team. And so like that didn't feel weird to us. It was just like, Hey, we're not going to get this one because it doesn't make any sense. Sure. Totally. So what, I guess at what stage did you, cause I know you ended up obviously intercom, uh, started going in the direction of building, you know, building an app ecosystem and platform. Like what, at what point did you leave the CS side to go over to run the platform? Like how many, how many people were on your team on the CS side to, before you made that, that transition? Yeah, so the CS team got to almost a hundred people uh, in the end, and and that was like broken down between a you know a couple of different kind of sub teams. There, it was, mm -hmm. um, you know, the support engineers, uh, more support reps doing the non technical stuff. There was a small kind of group of operations folks there, and then obviously there were all the managers you know needed to look after that large of an organization. Um, the team was spread globally, so Intercom has offices in a bunch of cities around the world, but there were also a handful of remote folks in that mix as well. Um, we mostly, and like, this is a, a weird anomaly, like intercom is very much an in-office culture company, uh, obviously not right now, but, um, you know, overall intercom really does focus on, you know, staying in house and, and working together in a, you know, face-to-face -face environment. Right. I was sort of left aside though, uh, in a lot of way, like in a good way. Um, you know, I, I was hired, I was remote. I never worked in one of the intercom offices directly. Uh, and the founders just kind of went you know, this seems to be working over here. I'll just leave you to it. Let me know if there's a problem. <laughs> and I was sort of left to kind of to my own devices and like built the team in the way that I wanted to build the team, right? Like, you know, it made right. sense in the beginning when we didn't have a bunch of offices to hire folks remotely because we needed to cover time zones. Right. Um, and over time, you know, that that mix changed and, and adjusted, but uh, it was the most kind of remote friendly team in the company because we were obviously spread out all over the world and we had to be. Right. What was that like for you, like being pretty much the only remote person in the entire huge intercom company? Well, like, yeah, I mean, the only would be an exaggeration. There was probably maybe uh, there was always a very small percentage of us, you know, floating around. There were a handful gotcha. of engineers that uh, sort of, you know, negotiated the same system as me or there was, you know, a couple of other support folks. But you're right, like we were in the vast minority. And um for me, I sort of overcame that just by uh, being more available and um, traveling pretty regularly to one of the offices. Mm -hmm. uh, and thankfully, I always had a good reason to do that. And so, uh, you know, I'd meet up with people in the offices or I'd meet them at offsites. And so I would kind of go over the top to build relationships when I could in those situations, um, at knowing that like, hey, I was about to go back to Italy and be on my own in my attic and 
uh, I'd have to rely on all these relationships uh, going forward to help get help me get stuff done. Totally. So that actually worked really well, but it, it certainly wasn't like the easy path, right? Like I had to do a lot of extra legwork to make sure that people remembered I existed, um, which is you know not a great default place to be, but uh, it worked fine. Like I, I'm not complaining at all. Yeah, it's, a, my... it's a trade-off to get to live where you want, so that's probably worth it, right? Exactly. Yeah, and that's kind of always the way I looked at it. it was like, look, you know, I'm I'm certainly by working for Intercom, that is a very in-office culture. I'm certainly trading, you know, potentially upward mobility, uh, but in my head, that's a totally worthwhile trade. Like I was trading it to live in an amazing place in the Alps, and you know, get to be 20 minutes from skiing and climbing and all the rest. Yeah, not too shabby. <laughs> yeah. So you so you make okay so. You end up making yeah. the change to, to the platform side? Yeah. So thankfully at the time when I was, uh, when the team got very large, like, you know, as you can probably tell, I joined Intercom very early. I'm joining Graphy very early. Like I'm kind of more tilted towards the early stage of things. Right. Uh, I like to operate in that environment more than I like to operate in a larger scale environment. Um, the job of running a big support team turns into a very different thing at a hundred people. Um, and so it was just something I was enjoying a little bit less every year. Uh, and not that I didn't enjoy it, but it was, it became more of, uh, not a chore, but like, it just was a different job and it was a job that I didn't enjoy as much. And so I started to look around intercom for like, Hey, what, what would be the next thing I might be able to do and might be able to help out on and what, what is new? Because that's kind of where, uh, I probably can be the most use. Um, and so, like you said, we were starting up this app ecosystem and, and trying to really put some, some energy behind that. And, and so that became kind of the perfect place for me to go. Um, I'd had lots and lots of product experience, uh, at the company. I've seen how people had integrated in the past, um, and, uh, had enough kind of the technical capability still that I could talk to people about, you know, specifically how to go about integrating with intercom. Um, and so. Uh, you know, very thankfully, I had a really great kind of second in charge, uh, Caitlin Pedersen, who's now running the support team at Intercom. Um, and I was able to just kind of extricate myself without too much, uh, you know, headache. I just kind of stepped away one day. I was like, all right, Caitlin, the shop's yours. See ya. That's uh, awesome. And it worked out really well. Yeah, that's great. And and yeah. on the platform side, I mean, it's interesting because like, I think we talked about this before, but we, we used Intercom. We were, I guess we were pretty early customers now that I think about it. I don't think I realized that so much at the time, but at our last company, we started, I think, in like 2013 or 2014 using it. So Yeah, you would have been very early. Yeah. And then shortly after that, we actually built a couple like very basic API integrations to like do Jira stuff and stuff like that. Um, right. So it was kind of funny a couple of years ago being like, oh, we're going to build a product on Intercom. All right, let's do it. Uh, and then we took a look and it was like, whoa, there's a lot. It was actually as the, plat the, the platform as it is today was kind of getting rolled out. So obviously we, we don't have to hit on this for too long, but I'm just curious what that was like, because obviously there was some, mo most products today have some sort of API sort of thing and some, some developer docs, but how did it go from that to sort of, Hey, let's, let's make this more of a focal point and have like a platform team and a partnership program and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's a, it's a really interesting question. And I think you're right. Like a pretty much, it's almost a, a foregone conclusion that, you know, a SaaS product these days is going to have an API and, and going to have a way people can access their data and, and like, you know, connect other things to it. Um, you know, Intercom has always had an API. Like I remember writing the first, you know, API documentation for Intercom back in 2012 or 2013. Um, you know, I, I remember you guys using the product way back then because I was supporting everybody. So I kind of, you know, recognize faces and names over time. <laughs> um, and it's funny that, uh, you know, you guys were, obviously you started building a product on Intercom. I remember, you know, and I've said this to you guys before, but, uh, you know, people were constantly being like, using user feed is this like interesting example of like why we should, you know, pursue this platform play. It's like, if people are already out building their own businesses on top of us, like that's a great sign that we should be going and encouraging more of that. Right. Um, and so, you know, for a long time, you guys were almost like the, the, the example that got trotted out anytime somebody wanted to push the platform play, which was cool. Yeah, that's we're just we're just political capital or whatever. We're <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Take it where you can. Hey, <laughs> um, but uh, no, like it was a. I think the the move there was like you know we we didn't want to do like try to make that move too early because it's um, it is very 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 difficult to build a platform. Um, you know, it's any side of, any kind of like two sided marketplace like that. Just there's a lot of externalities there. Um, 
it can very quickly kind of remove focus from the core product. And like the reason a platform works in the first place with a product, uh, you know, product like intercoms is that the product has to be valuable enough that there's a huge audience of users that are using it um, so that the developers want to come and build on top of it. Um, so I think, you know, we we were careful about when we actually wanted to turn that, you know, turn that mechanism on and start focusing on it. Um, you know, I think in a lot of ways we probably could have started earlier, but uh, at the same time, you know, it worked well that we already knew that there were some people out there building on Intercom. We already had this kind of fake app store where we would, you know, halfway list apps. Um, mm -hmm. And it, so it was kind of a smaller jump to say, hey, let's let's make this a real thing. Let's give developers way better tooling so that this becomes easier for them. And let's go out and, um, you know, get people to like actually try and encourage people directly to do these, uh, to build these apps. Um, it also perfectly coincided with a new version of our messenger, which was the first version of like messenger apps. Um, and so like with that, it was kind of like, Hey, if we're going to build these apps, then certainly we need people to, you know, make some apps for the messenger or else it'll look kind of weird. Um, so it was kind of the timing there was, was kind of pushed forward by that. Uh, idea of messenger apps. Yeah, yeah. That, that was big for us too because I know at the time we were we were in the process of building user feed, and we had actually planned on, you know, ha having kind of like what in the past, like the user voices of the world and stuff like that, where you had like a public, more like public page. But right. as soon as that, like literally, like right, I think it was like right when we were working on that specific aspect of the product you know, this, the, the new, you know, messenger home came out where you could have apps inside the messenger. And we just saw that as a much better way of doing it. Um, in, in terms of like showing like lists of feedback or features, um, roadmaps, things like that, just because you wouldn't have to, you know, have your users leave your, your product to go somewhere else. Right. You could just have them right. in you, in your product via intercom. So we sort of switched course and just started, uh, building that out. Um, but it was like right at that exact time. Wasn't it Kyle? I, I, th I feel like it was. Yeah. Yeah. We, even the conversation side, like having apps in, com in the conversation, yep. kind of the, that was huge too. Cause we had, we basically had kind of hacked together a bunch of weird stuff with tags and like notes and links and all this crazy stuff. Um, and since we weren't actually live, it was like, Oh, we'll just throw that stuff away and kind of tweak what we have and make it work with the apps. So it was, it kind of we we had a little bit of a head start, I guess, um, but it was pretty much perfect timing for us. Actually. Yeah, yeah, and it, I mean it's a it's a pretty cool feature. Like it's um, it was really fun to to be able to join that from the beginning and kind of get dropped from support world into you know right in the middle of the product, really. And uh, you know I went from working with a huge team of support managers to being really heads down in you know a product war room with uh, a PM designers and uh, you know a bunch of engineers who were still very much like finishing the product work and like going hey this is the date we have told marketing we're launching this thing um we have i can't remember if it was like 2 or 3 months but uh, we have 2 or 3 months to find several apps uh or build them ourselves so that when we launch this we can actually have you know a few apps that we can show how this can be valuable with. Um, and so that that very quickly became the thing. It was like, okay, go immediately and find people who can build apps for, you know, for the uh, for the launch, make sure that they can get it done by then and make sure that any feedback they have about how the thing works uh, comes back to us so we can very quickly fix it. Um, so it was interesting. It was like almost going back to, you know, MVP world in the middle of a very large company because, you know, it was a, a very different type of thing, uh, you know, and, and the customer base was developers instead of our normal customers. Yeah, that's pretty cool, actually. That's, yeah. I've never really thought about it in that way because obviously the customer base and the, I mean, the company was so established, but obviously that side was basically brand new with the exception of, like you said, there were some, I know there were some integrations and stuff, but I'm, those are a little bit less. Yeah. Yeah. It was definitely different. Yeah. Um, and, and like, you know, people are like, Oh, that's really weird. You went from uh, customer support to, to partnerships. And I'm like, actually it's the same. The customer was just different. Like, you know, I went from intercom customers to actually the platform customers. Uh, and those just happen to be a slightly different, you know, profile, but you know, they're still just customers. Yeah, yeah that, totally. That, it's funny. Yeah. I, I remember like chatting with you all like pretty early on and getting so it was, it was like cool. Cause it felt like, uh, obviously the impression from intercom from the outside is like I said, it's a big, it's, they know what they're doing. They've got it. And, but this particular kind of quadrant of the company was like, Oh, we're still, 
we're like really close to the customer. We're moving pretty quickly. This, like you said, it's like MVP style. So it was a completely different experience in terms of like, oh, wow, they're actually like, this feels like it's moving a lot faster and things are happening a lot faster here. So that was kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. And and for what it was worth, like, I mean, we, when, when I kind of moved over, uh, we very quickly spun up product teams around this and, you know, intercoms, uh, you know, I guess semi-famous or, you know, internet famous for like the way we structure our product teams and how that works and stuff. And so the, you know, there was all of a sudden two product teams working nonstop on platform stuff and it was, you know, them working on some of our internal apps, but, a lot of it was just focused on like, okay, you know, what do we do? Like, what do developers need from us in order to build these apps? Like, what would be the next feature that would sort of unlock more value for them? And, you know, what is that value even look like? Is it, you know, are they looking for a marketing channel or like a distribution channel here? Or is it, you know, do they want us to run the billing system for them like Shopify does so that, you know, they can just piggyback onto a customer's intercom invoice? And so it was really interesting to be in such a, you know, a space of like high ambiguity and, and something that was very related, but very different from kind of the core intercom offering. Yeah, I was going to so. say kind of on that note, I know we're like uh, kind of hammering the point home about the platform, but I'm curious now that you're gone, like what was, how, how do you feel when you left? Like, how do you feel that played out so far in terms of like, in our case, we're built entirely on intercom and there's, oh, I know yeah. there's at least a couple smaller uh, tools out there that are that. But I still am a little bit surprised in a certain way that there aren't more of them. And I don't know if it's just, I mean, some of it's just a matter of time, but I'm curious how you all saw that internally, like developing what, where was like the, where were the opportunities and where were the weak points? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, You know, I think I'm also a little surprised that there's not more uh, companies built directly on Intercom as a platform. Um, You know, I think... uh, partially uh that can potentially be explained by just the the change in the size of intercom customers um you know especially if it was a thing you know like atlassian's uh, got a system sort of like shopify where as an app developer you can just uh decide what your price is going to be and you know atlassian's going to take a little bit of a cut there but um as a customer of an atlassian product and you're using an app you can see the price you know what it's going to add to your bill but you don't have to go through the you know the process of uh, you know, getting your security vetted and all the other things, because you're sort of piggybacking into Atlassian's name there. Um, mm-hmm. And so as a customer, um, you know, of one of these companies that, you know, if you work at a bigger company, you're stuck, you know, like you can't use a lot of brand new tools that are out there because uh, your security team is like, hey, we haven't vetted that. You need them to fill out this, you know, SOC 2 compliance report. And and like brand new companies just, one, don't have the resources and time to deal with that stuff. And uh Two, like they're actually just not compliant yet because they're so small and new. Um, and so I think that uh, in those cases where you've got these really big companies as the main, uh, you know, as the main target customer, it can be harder for the really small guys in, in the app ecosystem to get going unless they get a lot of, of sort of um, both explicit but also implicit support from the kind of platform. Um, and so I think Intercom does a, a pretty good job of this in the sense that the sales team really knows, you know, what's in the app store and knows what to push when somebody's asking for, you know, a certain type of product. And, you know, to the degree that like, it, you know, if you're, if they're in a call and, and somebody's asking for some tool to do dashboards, the sales team can, can tell you the top three by downloads or by installs and they can tell you slight you know slightly about the differences between them and so you know they can give the customer a decent enough idea to get started on um mm-hmm. and giving that kind of vote of confidence really helps people go okay yeah cool that's fine we're like happy to pay for this and um you know the intercom sales team has good contacts with the sales team at that company that sort of thing but it yeah. does put like the indie developers like you guys in a weird spot um because you don't have a sales team you're like not likely to spin up a big sales team to work with our sales team um, and so in those cases, I think that, that, that Atlassian model works a lot better where, you know, the billing just kind of gets, uh, wrapped up in your intercom bill and, you know, uh, you see a lot of expansion and it becomes an actual distribution channel in that, in that way. Yeah. Yeah. That definitely makes a difference. I think the billing side, it's interesting cause it's nice in some ways, nice to own the relate, like you end up, we end up with a direct relationship. Um, but at the end, it doesn't really matter because we're built entirely on intercom. So I don't know if the trade-off is worth it. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, and you're you're totally right. Like if you can make that direct relationship work for you, that's better, uh, right? Because like 
platform risk is a thing for for smaller developers and like the platform can always take your idea and, and like build it into the product or it can just wipe you out or whatever but uh, having a direct relationship and having your own kind of brand there is is a really big asset if you can pull it off do you guys ever have did you have have those conversations where you're like oh this looks cool we should build this <laughs> to be honest no like it's a it's a bit of a joke because uh, like you could just be like oh yeah we could do that but yeah. then you realize that like even in big companies that have tons of resources like intercom time is by far the most scarce resource and like mm -hmm. being able to pick what to focus on is super difficult um, even if you have a huge engineering team and so uh, there is just like part of the reason the app ecosystem and intercom, you know, uh, exists is because we just knew there was going to be so many things that our customers wanted that we're never going to have time to get to. Right. Uh, and so it was like, of course we're going to do this. And like, even better than that, like, uh, we want to actually tell our, you know, app ecosystem, what white space we're definitely planning on not moving into, you know, we should be able to go out and say, look, our customers are asking for X, Y, and Z we're working on X. Y and Z, we're not going to touch at least for a few years. And so, you know, open, open hunting season there, like have fun. Oh, we need to find out whoever's, who, what person. Where's that? Where's that? At? <laughs> That's if a good question. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Got... That was definitely, that was definitely in my, uh, in my pocket when I was uh, there, but it's definitely not now. So our inside, yeah. our inside, uh, insiders at intercom are kind of like slowly trickling away. So we're, we're, we're grasping yeah. at straws now a little bit. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, um, I mean, it's, yeah, as companies get bigger, it gets harder. And, uh, you know, I think the, um, like it is like we were talking about before, you know, you see these kind of inflection points as, as time, you know, goes on at a company and looking like in the middle of it, it's really hard to see them looking back is a lot easier. And, um, you know, there's just certain types of people that are, less well suited to larger companies. And, you know, there's certain types of people that are very well suited to that, you know, to those environments. And so, um, you can almost see the recycling of people, um, that like, you know, the number of overall employees is always going up, but, uh, it's getting cycled over, you know, multiple times over all the years. And yeah. you're sort of replacing one group that was well suited in the beginning with a group that's better suited for the middle, which is, you know, being replaced by a group that's better suited for the, you know, nearing IPO type stage. And, you know, that's not to say one group is better than the other, but they're just, they're well suited for what they, you know, are doing. Um, and like all of the kind of worst, uh, you know, like worst issues with people, you know, at companies, a lot of times lead, you know, come from people just sticking around longer than they probably should have. Totally. totally. Yeah. That's actually a great no, transition. Like... In... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we won't, we won't go there. Um, we won't, we're not going down that dark path, but <laughs> yeah, that's, I did have one. Well, before that transition, I have one more question there on the platform side. Sure. If you don't mind, Kyle. Um, so I know there's probably, a, there's, I mean, I want to know this info too. Um, but, you know, for us, I know one of our initial goals was similar to your goal as a remote employee was to try to get in person and like really build relationships with people and like be front and center. And we're a small company. We're obviously, we were a tiny company, especially at the time that we started working, um, you know, on user feed you know, we tried our best with the resources and time that we had to like get front and center with you guys, both in terms of just like calls and, um, you know, being in person, like we went out to London and all these different things, right. We're doing our best. That was like our strategy to like build a better relationship with intercom, um, and, you know, potentially help our business as well. So, um, but I'd love to hear what your advice would be for, you know, other like, uh, small teams or bootstrappers or whatever that are trying to build a company or plat uh, product on top of a platform, like what they might be able to do, you know, whether it's intercom or Slack or Salesforce or right. Shopify to, uh, you know, have the, as much success as they possibly can. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, this is definitely uh, more generic than, than specifically intercom. Um, but I think there's a couple of like big things that can help there. Um, one is you need to be aligned in what customers you're going after. And so, uh, you know, a lot of times it's fairly easy to see, you know, based on the tactics of the parent, you know, the parent, the platform company about how they go after customers. Um, it's, it's pretty clear as to like which size of the market or which part of the market are they going after? What size of customer? 
um, and like what profile of customer or segment of the customers. Um, so I think being aligned there is step one, because otherwise you're like, you're always just going to be fighting an uphill battle and, and you're probably never going to get anywhere. Um, and, and again, like we said before, know that that changes over time. And so you need to kind of keep a, keep a pulse on that and know that like, Hey, or which, who are we targeting here? Um, so that's a big one. Uh, and the second one I think is, is kind of do exactly what you guys did, right? Like you, as a super tiny company, you guys had way more mind share than lots of our other partners in much bigger companies, right? Because you were always there. You were always being helpful. You were always creating content and putting it out into the community. Like you, you know, you guys have the, the inter-community Slack group for God's sakes. Like, you know, it's the, like, it's those types of things that actually make, uh, that build that relationship more than anything else and make, mm -hmm. you know, the parent company think of like, oh, who do we want to work with? Oh, those guys, like one, they've got, a, you know, a, a, their own audience and they really know our product well, and they've done a lot of work to, you know, build high quality product on top of ours. Um, and two, like, you know, just by virtue of the fact that you know all those things and you do all that work, we know that it's going to be easy enough to work with you. Um, you know, on the partnership side, there's definitely uh, partnerships that are easier than others by a long shot. And it all comes down to how the teams work and how the teams work together on things. And so, you know, I can think of a bunch of examples where, uh, you know, the the bigger name in a space ended up uh, doing a much worse job about building their app for Intercom or, you know, uh, about getting kind of capturing customer mindshare there because they just couldn't get it together or, you know, it just wasn't their priority and that's okay too. But like, you know, it, you know, know what you're going after and kind of be really focused about that. Totally. Um, yeah. And like to that last point, I remember talking to a guy who he was in a CEO that had sold his company to Intuit or something, uh, at some dinner in London one time. And he was saying basically, you know, they were, into its like best platform company uh, for years. And that was how the, you know, that's how they, in the end, they got bought by Intuit because they were just kind of going, what is the next thing you guys need a tool to do? Like, what's the, like, what's the next most adjacent thing to what our, our platform tool does that we can actually build for you guys that you guys know you're not going to build. And so again, it's sort of like, once you get close, find that white space and keep filling it, you know, like keep yeah. building features that the company wishes they could build or wishes they had time to build, but can't. Um, because then, you know, whether or not acquisition is your target or not, like you become a very good acquisition target because it's like, Hey, these people are basically already working for us in a sense. Stop, stop explaining our strategy. Yeah. <laughs> we'll cut this. We'll cut that's, this. We gotta, we gotta cut this out. Yeah. No, we, go. Well, just for anybody that's listening that uses intercom, we have some new intercom apps that should be coming out in the next well, I don't want to speak for Kyle, yeah, but I was I'm going to. I was getting scared. <laughs> In the next, well, what if I said the next couple of months, does that cover enough that's, time? Yeah, that's, that's fair. That's fair. Estimation <laughs> of engineering tasks is hard. I understand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we're pretty, we're pretty, it has been fun though. Like it's um, working on something different, um, you know, on, on the intercom side and just by having an intercom product in the first place and through doing all these different things through like inner community and um, writing all this intercom content. Like the reason we write the intercom content is because it's useful to our customers. But also uh, I remember we wrote something early on and like intercom, like retweeted it and like added it to their blog. We we're like, Oh, Oh yeah. yeah. We need to do this like all the time. Yeah, that <laughs> so we started, well. <laughs> yeah, that went well. Let's do, let's just replicate that. So, um, so that's how that started. But, but yeah, as we've started to like kind of, um, do all of these different things. We've just learned of so many different uh, use cases and potential product ideas. Um, just you know, things that Intercom, you know, like you said, could do probably in a in a month. But it's like there's so many things that kind of fit that bill at Intercom um, yeah. that you know they're working on so many different things. So we you know we feel like we could be somebody. Uh, they can can cover some of that stuff. So it has been, it's definitely been fun. We're excited to get this this new app out soon. Um, I can't wait so to see we'll it. see what happens. Yeah. Well, if you want to try it, I'm sure we can make that happen. Oh, that, right. that would also be fun. Let's do that. Yeah. Cool. Uh, Kyle, I'll uh, hand that over to you. I know you had something you wanted to um, to ask. Well, Jeff, Jeff had queued us up for the perfect transition, which was, um, and then I ruined it. Yeah. I Thanks a lot. Um, talking about kind of the as the company grows, obviously people's skill sets and interest levels don't always fit at different phases or fit better as those things change. So 
that was my long-winded segue into your departure and move to Graphy. So what, yeah. like, what, I guess, I, I think we talked about this before, but what, like, what was the prompt for you to consider that? And then why Graphy? Yes. Okay. So, I mean, the prompt was, was like no single incident. It was just a, um, you know, very slow, long kind of, uh, process of thought that kind of led me down the, like, what could be next? Um, you know, I could stay at intercom. It's, uh, you know, very comfortable. I know the place very well. I, you know, I know the lay of the land and I, I know there's always going to be fun, interesting new stuff I can work on. Uh, and I've got enough kind of social capital to, to be able to kind of weasel my way into the next kind of whatever the next like platform jump would be where the, you know, the next new thing that needs, uh, needs kind of early stage thinking. Um, to be honest, I think it like partially, you know, once you get to a big company, some of that early stage thinking, you can still do it in small pieces, um, but you still have to be able to play the larger game of like understanding, you know, how the organization functions. And and like I say politics, not in a derogatory or a bad way, because it's it's not like, you know, politics in a, in a nasty sense. It's more just how things get done, right? And like knowing how all that works and being able to play that game and, and be happy playing that game is, is like a skill. Um, but it's not a skill I really like am good at or like doing. And so I think I just slowly started to come around to this idea that like, Hey, I should probably try something else. You know, like I've been here a really long time. I've learned an absolute mountain, you know, made a ton of amazing friends and, and great relationships and, um, kind of wanted, had this feeling that like, hey, I should, I should go and see, uh, you know, can I, can I roll the dice again and actually, you know, come up, uh, come up with a seven or whatever it is. Um, is that how craps works? I have no uh, idea. You're, you're, in a, you're already past my, my yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> Glad to know I'm in good company. Uh, in any case, like the, the idea there though, like, you know, can I, can I go to another company at a really early stage and actually be able to make e an even bigger impact because I've learned so much stuff at intercom over the last, you know, eight years. Um, and so I started asking around a little bit to some folks that, you know, I trust and, and know a lot about the really early stage space. And, um, Graphy was one of the very first ones that came back, uh, you know, and, and he was like, the, the like recommendation was astounding. Like the email came back very quickly and it was like, here's three, but really the one you want is this first one. And you need to talk to, you know, Andre, the CEO at Graphy, like you have to, cause you're going to love them. Um, That's and sure enough, like, that was pretty much exactly what happened. Like I, I had started interviewing already at that point with, uh, companies that were a stage or two back from intercom. So like series C, series B. And every time I would do this, I'd be like, yeah, this is cool. But, and like, I could go to this company, but like in a year, you know, in the case of a series C company in a year, I'm going to be right back where I am. Yeah. And then I go down one level and I'd be like, all right, maybe a series B company would be better. And well, yeah, but then in like two years, I'm going to be right back where I am right now. And, you know, I slowly started stepping backwards. And when I started talking to Andre, it was still just Andre and Roman our two founders at Graphy, no one else. And they were like, it's probably pretty early, but we should figure out some way to do this. Uh, maybe it'll be a while, but like we should figure out some way to do this. And for the intervening kind of uh, almost nine months before I actually joined, uh, you know, I was chatting with Andre via WhatsApp like multiple times a week. Um, you know, as uh, as we raised some funding at Graphy, or as they raised some funding at Graphy, like I was uh, kind of in the middle of that process, like chatting to them about that and things. So there was a feeling of like. I'm in this from, you know, the earliest, earliest stages. There's like a, you know, really nice transparency here. They're both just fantastic people, individuals. The idea is really, really great. You know, like when you uh, look at the data landscape and the BI tools versus these dashboard tools versus spreadsheets, you kind of go, there's a lot of white space here. There's a lot of space for somebody to do something much better. Um, and having used a lot of BI tools at Intercom, I knew just how bad they were and how hard to use they were. Uh, so as a product idea, it was like, yeah, this is spot on. And then as a, you know, group of people, it was like, do I believe that these two founders are the ones that could potentially pull this off? And, you know, after having months to get to know them, like that became more and more clear as well. So, uh, you know, by the time I actually left to, to join Graphy, it felt like I'd already been part of the team for months. Yeah. That helps a lot. I'm sure. I mean, that's having that, having that early access or early relationship is, is really nice. Cause you also like, you both get the, each side gets to kind of get to know the other to really solidify that before you jump in. 
Right, right. Yeah, like removes a ton of the risk there. And, you know, like you hear VCs and stuff complaining about how fast the investment cycles are these days and how they have like, you know, less than 24 hours to decide whether they're going to, you know, whether they're going to write a check or not. And I guess this was the exact extreme opposite of that. It's like, you know, months and months and months. And, um, you know, got to see uh, Andre operating under a bunch of different conditions and, you know, see how he reacted and stuff. So felt pretty confident going into it. So, so what has, I mean, it's, you've been there, what, four or five months now? Yeah, just about four months. What has your, like, what are, obviously you're getting ramped up on the product as it stood when you arrived, but what, what, how would you describe your weekly, weekly role at this point? It's crazy. Or does that change every week? <laughs> yeah, think, really? Like the way Graphy is, um, so we, there's two founders and then we have a bunch of engineers and we have an illustrator and an operations person and me. Um, so my remit is effectively anything that's on the customer side of the house is Jeff. Uh, and because we're so early, a lot of that actually translates into product work as well. Um, so, you know, in the four months I've worked on everything from like putting together our, you know, our process around how do we do product briefs and, you know, how do we prepare to actually, you know, build something. Uh, and then, you know, doing road mapping work, um, doing a lot of customer interviews. Um, you know, I spent a ton of time just on Zoom asking people how they use data, what they, you know, find great about the tools they use, what they miss, um, you know, what they would love to see. Uh, and then as we've gotten closer to a product that's, uh, you know, almost customer ready, uh, we've started to a little early, obviously, onboard some customers to the product and and see what's happening. Right. And so that's all just, you know, piles and piles of learning and and understanding like, you know, what's fitting, what resonates, how do people describe this back to you when they see it? Um, so it's a little bit of customer success. It's a little bit of product. It's a little bit of like product marketing. Um, it's great. It's great fun. A little bit of, a little bit of something different every day. Yeah. That's, I, I always am fascinated by the pr- relationship between product and support or like that intersection. I think it, like as companies grow, obviously a lot of what used to be one person's job becomes like teams that, obviously at some level try to communicate sometimes poorly, but I, I, it just feels like such a good fit for people who are so, so in touch with customers have, have a voice in the product. Yeah, it's actually, it's, it's a really interesting this one, one as well. Like I feel like customer success, uh, you know, certainly at the beginning of intercom, that was like the beginning of that term. And I don't know if it was coined by Gainsight or not, but like, you know, the idea of custom, you know, making customers successful and like, uh, was totally new back then and like didn't make any sense uh, to a lot of people and like was defined in a million different ways. And I think it's like slowly settled into this, uh, you know, depending on the segment of customers you're going after, you kind of know what that job does. But at the earliest stages, it, you know, customer success probably is the best moniker for, you know, product, product marketing, support, sales, and, you know, this idea of like onboarding. Um, because you really are doing everything from, you know, helping people use the product at the lowest levels to trying to define the strategy around like, how do we position this thing that we've built and like sell it to the world? Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's interesting that you say that. It got me thinking about, it's not just, uh, it. For the first thing I always think about is making customers success, like making our customers successful, but it's also, especially in the early days, it's like, um, that doesn't necessarily mean you have the customer yet. Like you might be still trying to figure out who is a customer who can be successful and then also at the same time, when we have people in the door, making them successful and like bringing them into that population or, or figuring out what that population even looks like. Right, right. And then again, like looking at that over time and like, how is that going to change as customers use our product more and more or as their team grows or as our product gets more uh, mature? Like what are the, I guess, what's the fourth dimension there of time due to all of those factors? Um, and so I think a lot of customer success is is like looking at the lifetime value aspect rather than the you know, individual point along the journey, wherever they might be working on that given day. Right. And the lifetime value is like more than just what everybody assumes it is, which is like revenue. Like it's a, it's a lot of like, it's, it's product feedback. It's like you said, getting feedback and understanding or insights in terms of like how you would market this to other customers. Like there's so much there. I always tell people too, it's like if a great, especially early on, like a great customer success team or person or whatever it is can hide a lot of the the gaps in the product which you will inevitably have um when you're early just like you said with intercom right this amazing great product like early on it wasn't that way and you guys had a lot of you know gaps and things that you had to to get to at some point you know but like having a great uh support team really kind of helps 
you know, hide that stuff a little bit and helps you um, get to the next level in terms of product and all this. Right, things. right. And like, to be honest, I mean, customer expectations have come so far, right? Like, you know, I think um, like Mark Andreessen's quote about launching, you know, while you're still embarrassed about what your product looks like is uh, is very accurate and people should launch a little before they're ready. But um, but the level at which, you know, you're just a, like the level at which you're still embarrassed it has gotten so much higher than it used to be. You know, like Intercom's product when we launched back in whatever, 2011, 2012, was, uh, you know, paltry in comparison to like the level of product, you know, building and detail and like the beauty of the design and stuff of products coming out now. And so, you know, you're going into a much more competitive environment where there's software covering almost every surface, uh, where as, you know, eight, 10 years ago, that just wasn't the, the wasn't true. Um, so I think, you know, the level at which, uh, customers expect really high quality product is through the roof these days. And so the product, even when it's early, you know, has a lot to live up to. And like you said, uh, great support folks, great success folks, um, great content can also, you know, fill these gaps where, you know, the product might be lacking, but you can see that it's coming, right? Well, that, that's what I was going to say is I, I think the expectation, like what is an MVP, yeah, like you said, has changed or the the quality of just first versions is just so much higher. But at the same time, in a good way, I think people are also more used to like anyone who's going to be somewhat of an early adopter is, is there's more of those people and they're more used to like that journey and being on that journey with the company as opposed to coming in and saying like, it doesn't have this, this and this, I'm out. Um, obviously that's not everybody, but I think that's where support is so key too is, or just proactive like being an active listener and letting people know that you're there is is like at the bare minimum so so valuable because especially in the early days people are like that's in in a lot of cases that's all you can do like you might not be able to give them what they want but you can at least tell them like that you're there and that you're listening that you're listening and that hey it's also coming like let me give you a sneak pre you know sneak preview like you're you know it's kind of you're you're almost making them collaborators on the journey right like you know you get them invested early on so that they feel like hey th this this product is mine as well right and and that's you know those are the kernels of a really wonderful community that gets built around these amazing products and stuff and like i, I was trying out Rome research for the 19th time <laughs> uh, there recently and like you know i there's something that just keeps bringing me back to it but the community around that product is insane. Like they are, you know, rabid over the thing. Yeah. And so, you know, when you see that, it kind of makes you go, some, I must be missing something here. You know what I mean? Like if all these smart people are saying this many nice things about this thing, either I'm missing something and I need to come back and try this again, or like, you know, there's some sort of group madness thing going on here. Yeah, I can, I can, I, I have a lot of trouble distinguishing between those two things. Um, on my Twitter timeline. So I'm just like, so most of the time I'm like, eh, I don't have, I don't have the time to go, uh, basically pretend like I'm being productive by learning a new tool to connect my ideas, but I'm sure right. there's something to it for sure. Well, I mean, that's, I think the main point there is, um, you know, those guys have done something amazing by, you know, having a very, very early product that's extremely hard to use and understand and like, you know, uh, figure out, uh, but the community is built around it all the same, you know, and people are, uh, almost excited by how hard it is to use and learn. Um, and so I think that's like one of those things that, um, you know, it seems to me that, uh, the founder Connor there has done a really great job of like, you know, enabling those people to talk more about it and enabling that community to, to be a part of the journey with them rather than just like, Hey, we're building this product and you're going to buy it from us. Um, you know, they're, they feel like they're actually part of the team building it. Totally. Yeah. That that's huge. And, and that's actually why we already, that's why we were already intercom users is I think, we're talking about the support side. I think it can like, uh, obviously it's, it can be seen as semantics, but I think even just calling things conversations as opposed to tickets and stuff, like, mm -hmm. I think it does matter at some level, at least how you, how you think about those things as a, as an organization. And I, I see so often that, and I experience as a customer so often, just awful, like how, how, how quickly can I close this ticket as opposed to like, what's, what, like these are, there's a surface area here and I can pick areas and dig deeper and learn more than they're even offering and make them feel good about it in the process. And I think that's like, that's kind of the same thing where it's like, let's, let's do this together. We're not, you're not asking me a question and I'm answering it and telling you to go away. It's like, let's, let's sit next to each other and look at this together and, and see where we can go. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, that's, I love what you're I, like. It's a, hearing you say that, like what customer success is to you, especially early on. 
like what that role really is and, and like how big it is. I think that's really interesting. And what I think a lot of people, a lot of companies, a lot of people miss. Well, I think a lot of people think customer success is what Kyle just mentioned, which is just like, like how, you know, how quickly can we close tickets, like tickets, this tickets that like just get stuff closed, get an answer out, get it closed. Like that's not what customer success is at all. At least in terms of what I've ever experienced, um, like it's just not what it is. It's so much more. It's about engaging and continuing the conversation, trying to, 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 um, you know, learn something from the conversation constantly. And so like a lot of, like the way I think about it now, as you say that is like, that's like so much of what we're, what we've tried to do with user feed is kind of giving customer support teams like tools to like have more conversation with users to pry a little bit more, to get more information, more insights. Um, and then like with our new tool is about kind of, again, like helping you continue that conversation and make sure that you're helping the customer and, and um, you know, uh, it, getting them implemented and all that sort of thing. So yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely an interesting topic. We could probably, yeah. I know we've already done like two podcasts on that exact I topic. Know. Yeah. Like there's, there's an interesting book that I always come back to and, and like think about really regularly. And, and I find that, um, it's, it's a book that is like applicable pretty much everywhere. Um, but it's called finite and infinite games, um, by a guy named James P. Cars, James P. Cars. I don't know if you guys, either of you have read it. It's a phenomenal book, but it basically just talks about the difference between what a finite game is, which is someone's going to win, someone's going to lose. There's going to be an outcome and it's going to be done versus an infinite game where the actual point of the game is just to keep playing longer. Um, And so in a lot of ways, like business and, and so many other things in life are infinite games or should be. And, you know, when they're played as infinite games, they're vastly more, you know, you're more successful one, but you're also just more happy. Uh, you, you know, they like the incentives around an infinite game mean that you're not going to, you're going to think long-term, you're not going to, you know, uh, shoot your customers in the back. Like you're not going to do things that are short-termist. Um, and so it, it's a phenomenal book. Like if, it, you know, I'd, highly recommend it to both of you. Um, but it's so applicable to this idea of like customer success and company building and product building that, you know, if you just remember, I'm playing an infinite game, no matter what, I'm playing an infinite game. Mm-hmm. You don't make stupid, you know, decisions like, let's just close this ticket and move on to the next one. Exactly. No, I 100% agree. And I, I haven't read that, but I've, I've heard people reference it in like other podcasts or blogs that I've read or whatever. So I definitely need to, I need to, pick that up or just order it on amazon or something i'll do that i'm gonna do that right my, after my reading list is an infinite game so yeah well, there you go. <laughs> that is another thing that is an infinite game yeah. yep that that reminds well, cool. me of the, the other quote that i always reference here which is uh I, I can't good heart's law or something it's like when a when a measure becomes a target it's no longer a good measure i think about that a lot with support mm. too it's it's like understanding what your response times are and like time to first response which i think is more useful generally than like time to close. Cause I, I just think it's, there's just too much variability there, but any of those metrics um, can be useful to understand what's happening and even like to tune a little bit, see if we can in- introduce some automations or some help articles and see how those things change over time. But making those like, let's make that time as short as possible. I don't think like once you do that, you've changed the whole dynamic of how the team operates. So. Right. Right. I don't know where that's come from either. Like where this like idea of that kind of stuff or like, I mean, maybe it's, I don't know. I guess there's like with bots and things, I think there's this misconception that you're just trying to like automate it all. And that, that spending time actually conversing with people is like somehow a a negative thing um, in terms of running your business. But um, somehow at least with some, you know, we've definitely run into it with some companies where that's just sort of kind of transitioned into that somehow. I'm not sure yeah. where that happened. You know, one, of the, one of the really big things that, uh, you know, is, is drilled into you at Intercom or that maybe was drilled into me at Intercom is, is like, and I hadn't really, I think, you know, if you, had you asked me in the year before I joined Intercom, I would not have been able to put a fine point on this. But um, the idea that like everything you do is a trade-off, right? Like no matter what you do, there's going to be a, you know, equal and opposite reaction or, you know, there's going to be a change somewhere else because of that. And so I think, um, you know, like looking at all metrics in that way, it's good to, to think, you know, okay, what, what is going to be the reaction here? What's going to be the trade-off that we're, we're accepting? And like, 
kind of going into those trade-offs open, you know, with eyes open, uh, has always helped a lot. Like when you, you know, when I've gotten to a place where it's like, okay, we have to make a decision about how we're going to do X, Y, or Z. Um, it's not really a decision about which is the right path forward. It's like, which set of trade-offs are we actually happy to accept? Um, and when you think about it that way, like, you know, a lot of these metric things become a lot simpler because you're like, well, what is, what's the thing we're incentivizing and what's the trade-off we're, we're happy to take versus the trade-offs we definitely don't want. Um, and when you put it in that kind of term, it, I think it, for me, at least it makes it a lot easier to kind of abstract those things into something that's useful and something that you can move forward a decision with. Yeah, I agree. If only more people thought, uh, thought that way in terms of politics. <laughs> well, we'll, go, we'll go too deep into that. Stay tuned for That's hour helpful. two of the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. I know we're getting to the end and we're probably going to end it here soon in a couple of minutes, but so you live in Italy currently. Um, I'm assuming you're still like voting and whatnot in the U S is that, is that the yeah. case? Yeah. I'm still, I'm still an American citizen. I have to do all my voting by mail and all that, but yeah, uh, yeah that still all happens. And, um, yeah, it's interesting. I'm, uh, hopefully in the next year or so eligible for an Italian passport, which I will be very, very happy to get, um, yeah. if for no other reason than I go through an American passport, like once every year, uh, because, <laughs> you know, well, before COVID, I suppose with all the travel, yeah. but, um, but no, like, yeah, I'm, I'm still an American citizen, uh, just living over here. That's awesome. Well, this has been this has been a, a great conversation in a lot of ways and finally got you on. I know it's been I don't know, we've talked about this for probably <laughs> probably almost a year now. Um so it's been uh it's been awesome to to have this chat and we'll definitely have to regroup at some point, maybe I don't know, in like eight months to a year or something and just see like see how things are going and see how you feel about being sort of you know, at an early stage company, you know, for an entire year, what that's like now, you know, when things have gotten different and harder in some ways in the SaaS world versus like what you uh, experienced at Intercom way back in, what is it, 2013, 2012? 2012, yeah, yeah. I'm aging um, well, us yeah, all here. But... It's been so much fun, guys. Thank you so much for having me on. And, uh, you know, we've covered all sorts of topics. So uh, I'm, I'm happy to always come back and chat more, but... Uh... Hopefully this has been useful. Yeah. yeah. And, the, and the last thing is where can, uh, so where can people find you like on Twitter and then also um, where can they find your product? Yes. So uh, Graphy is at graphyapp.com. Um, it is a product, basically, you know, it's for teams to collaborate on data. And so our, our kind of paradigm is to uh, make it easier for people to connect uh, to all the different SaaS products they use, pull the data into Graphy build beautiful charts and dashboards and reports, and then actually have discussions at the individual data point level with their teams on you know, what they're seeing in, those, in that data. So it's um, very early, it's still private beta, but uh, happy to have everybody email me or ping me on Twitter or whatever, and uh, I can give some early access to folks and uh, otherwise just get onto the wait list and we're gonna be trying to get through that as quickly as we can. Um, and, and I'm on Twitter. Uh, my handle is super hard to remember, but it's easy because I always get it on every service because it's my middle name and my last name, Erskine Gardner. Uh, so people can look me up. They'll probably just find Jeff Gardner Twitter faster than they would anything else. Awesome. And we'll link all this stuff in the show notes. But uh, yeah, I guess that's a wrap. We'll talk to you guys soon. All right. Take care, guys. Thanks, Jeff.